I've been thinking about going out and getting CBD oil for my migraines. One of my clients just told me that there's a bill for recreational marijuana going They're through the house right now. very close right now, right now mm-hmm. yeah. Very close. Are you and me going <laughs> to toke up? <laughs> Is it, I don't. Think are we so. going to change our show to Freddy and Smokes? <laughs> no, I don't think so. We just would like to remind you that none of the things that we say should be taken as official recommendations. We try to know what we're talking about, but this podcast ultimately represents the opinions of a couple yahoos with master's degrees. It's <laughs> mainly for entertainment. Right. So if you feel that you need help with your own mental health, we encourage you, please talk to your very own doctor or your very own counselor. Get real help. And remember, this podcast is not safe for work, so listen with headphones. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Freudian Sips. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Anna. (laughs) And we are so happy to have you along today or this evening or the middle of the night. Or whenever you're listening to this. That's a really cool thing about podcasts. Yeah. That it could be any time. Transcend time. Exactly. (laughs) So as we sip, you might be sipping orange juice in the morning or a mimosa if you're really (laughs) classy. Or a glass of wine in the morning. (laughs) Or it might be the middle of the night and you're up in the middle of the night, you can't sleep and you're listening to the podcast and you're drinking warm milk. (laughs) Do you really do that? I don't drink warm milk. I hate Yeah, I don't like milk. Warm milk. It's disgusting. Milk's it's, bad enough when If it's you're going to drink and... warm milk, put chocolate in yes. it so it's hot chocolate. Yeah, that would be all right. Speaking of hot drinks, this is, might be a Freudian Sips first where I am not drinking an alcoholic beverage. I am drinking hot tea. I'm drinking lemon tea with honey in it because I'm feeling a little sick. Too sick. We're actually, we're recording this on the day after we recorded our last episode to part the curtain a little bit. And so I was like, yesterday I was like, yeah, I'm a little sick. I feel, I feel okay. I feel okay by tomorrow. No, I'm feeling worse. Worse. <laughs> feeling worse. But don't worry because I'm holding up my end oh, with yeah. a big old glass of wine. <laughs> So I'll I'll still be funny, I think. (laughs) I'll still think you're funny because I'm drinking the wine. (laughs) That's just important. As long as you're laughing at the things I say, then then we're fine. Yeah. As long as one of us really thinks something is funny, I think we'll be all right. I think so. So, yes, we are doing a part two today. This is part part two two of a series of indeterminate length. Yes. (laughs) We don't. For for months. (laughs) We don't know how long we're going to talk about this. Because there's a lot to talk about. There is. There is. So what are we continuing? So in episode 17, we Mm -hmm. talked about Eric Erickson and his life stages. Our special boy, Eric Erickson. Our special boy. Eric Hamburger Erickson. Our hamburger man. Our hamburger man. (laughs) And so... um, Can't catch me on the hamburger man. (laughs) If you didn't hear about the hamburger man, be sure you listen to episode 17. If If you blow hot... Tea through your nose that might clear it all might out. Might clear it up, yeah. It might I, be like work. a yeah, like a neti pot, a weird <laughs> the reverse would, neti pot. That would not be a good sound on a microphone, though. <laughs> Woo! Bad um, microphone noises are our brand. <laughs> so, in the last episode, we talked about Eric, and we also talked about the first stage, which is infancy. Usually, for the first twenty-four months, is considered infancy. Now, I'm going to do kind of like a weird disclaimer kind of thing. I don't know. Erickson had eight original stages, psychosocial stages. Yes, but they've kind of expanded and evolved, and so it kind of seems like there are more than eight now. So, as we go through the next couple of episodes, you'll notice that it's. Kind of like there's more than eight now, but yeah. we'll explain that as we go along. I think we, it got up to along. ten at some point. They yeah. like split some of them up because some of the stages, like the one we talked about in the first episode, infancy, is obviously two years long. The one I'm going to be talking about today is two years long. Mm-hmm. And they kind of progressively get longer and longer where adulthood, I think, is 20 years, the original stage. So they broke that up because obviously that's a really long time and we encounter a lot of different experiences during that time. So people, as time has gone on, have been like, well, it makes 
more sense for there to be more than one right. crisis in that time. And quite frankly, our society is changing. Yeah, and true. so it's different and now. We're living longer. And- right. We're living longer. We're retiring later. Yeah. Young people are, are living with their parents longer. There's a lot of social stuff that's really come All of about. those things are from student loans. <laughs> Exactly. And so a lot of that has brought about the changes that we see. So just kind of a look back real quick before we go on to what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. The last episode we talked about infancy, which is the first 24 months of a baby's life. We talked about how Erickson has, with each stage, he has developmental tasks And in infancy, those were all those really, there was a lot of them. Think about everything that a baby does, the developmental tasks. I'm not going to listen. No. There's a lot. (laughs) Listen Um, to episodes of it. There's a lot. And then each stage has a psychosocial crisis. And for infancy, that's trust versus mistrust. We talked about that connection um, with a baby and their caregivers. And the lack of that is a problem, Mm -hmm. is a problem. So if they have a lack of trust in their caregiver, they come out of that crisis with that mistrust. Uh, During that psychosocial crisis, their central process, what helps them get through that is mutuality with the caregiver. So the caregiver is taking care. And we kind of put a lot of responsibility on the mom Mm -hmm. um, because that's what Erickson did. But we know that's another thing that's kind of changed in our society. Hopefully. Um, Exactly. And then So then if they come out of the crisis with trust, they have the new prime adaptive ego quality, or some people call it virtue of hope, which is a lovely word. Yes. Unfortunately, if they come out of it with mistrust, if they come out of it on the negative side, they have a new core pathology, which we call withdrawal. And so those babies kind of pull inward and they don't have a lot of hopefulness going into toddlerhood. They're they're fearful and they're more anxious and they're withdrawn. So those are the negative sides of that. And we talked about how with each stage, you go on to the next stage, but if you weren't successful in that stage, that somewhere down the road, that kind of negativity like pops its little head up and bites you in the butt, basically. (laughs) (laughs) So if you come out of infancy without that trust, it's going to show later, especially when you have intimate relationships and things like that. So that might be something that you work on in counseling um, with your therapist to kind of go back and fix those owie spots. So... <laughs> we all have <laughs> since we're going to be spots. talking about toddlerhood, they yes. are owie spots. Um, so we go from infancy to the second stage, which is what Anna's going to talk about today, which is toddlerhood, two to four years old. Mm, those are those little drunk people, <laughs> the little drunk people in <laughs> that our we got to mention in the last episode when they're toddling around looking all intoxicated. And toddling is exactly why they're called toddlers. Mm-hmm. I, I know that's just sort of a funny word, but toddling is a form of movement, which is basically what they do as their prime their prime movement, their prime <laughs> way to get places. They toddle. Right. They they kind of only toddle for the first like year of the stage ish. But that is one of the first developmental tasks is elaboration of locomotion, which is a fancy way to say how they move and how they're refining how they move. Mm -hmm. So, like, locomotion is just movement. Come on, baby. Locomotion. (laughs) We both burst into song at the same moment. (laughs) We should just do it. No, we'll get copyright. No. Oh, okay, we don't have time. <laughs> Someone will yell at us. I don't know who. We'll get in trouble the, and then we'll have a We will. I don't around. I don't deal well with getting in trouble. Okay. Which we'll talk about in we'll the next one. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. So locomotion is just movement. And movement is obviously how we as people translate ideas into actions how we exert ourselves and our own will on the world around us, but also how especially toddlers remain close to their objects of attachment, things they find important and people they find important, Mm -hmm. and how they balance that with exploring their environment, which is a very important part of this entire stage. (laughs) A very important quote from the book that we've been using to kind of structure these episodes is, obviously three-year-olds are not ready to set out for life alone in the big city. (laughs) Oh, I'm so Thanks. glad they told us that. Thanks, textbook. This is why I spent $300 on you. Great. Thanks. Great. Yeah. Here's your knapsack, honey. <laughs> get, a little, get a little hobo bindle, like a little, a little bag Go on Go find stick. some work and then yeah. come home for supper. <laughs> but even though they're not ready for, you know, life alone in the big city, they are ready 
to express like independent thoughts and they're ready to start exercising control in making their own choices and they're starting to get ready to do things independently. I know that seems young when we think about it to start doing things independently but that's how a lot of kids get really frustrated that they feel like they have their own will and they're starting to develop their own sense of self but they don't have the ability or the opportunity to express their own choices Mm -hmm. because they can't communicate it well or when they can they aren't listened to like they're three so yes when they fall on the floor and make razzing sounds and (laughs) kick their feet and cry and Mm -hmm. they're crying really hard or hold their breath until they pass out or something like that why are you using that (laughs) as an example mom some very strong-willed children might do that at some point mom did that when she was a kid Her form of temper tantruming was to hold her breath until she passed out. Technically, I didn't hold my breath, according to story. It was that I would inhale until I passed out. I didn't know that I could make you Let's pass do it out right first. Now. <laughs> yeah, Mom's going to do it on air. Plunk. I would fall much harder now than I, I did when I was... That continues to baffle me because I have always read about, like, we can't do things that will intentionally harm ourselves like that. Like That's like, how strong-willed I was. <laughs> broke, I broke the, the laws of biology <laughs> to express her upset yes. to her mother who probably just kept doing her own stuff. And mom was like, oh, she'll be all right. She, good, she's finally asleep and she'll stop talking. <laughs> But it's interesting. A lot of people do, you know, they call it the terrible twos. Yeah. And a lot of two-year-olds do some kind of temper tantrum. The, I, I have to be honest, Anna, you really didn't. Oh, thank you. I you, saved it for now. Well, I, I think that. The, now. <laughs> but I do have to say that when you were about 18 months old, you got so strong-willed that I said to some of my friends, I am scared. Because if the terrible twos are yet coming and Anna is doing what she's doing now at 18 months, I will be dead. But probably what I was doing was just hitting that kind of terrible two milestone a little exactly. early. Exactly. Because exactly I got over it. Got out of the system. Because you were so mature for your age. So mature. Six months before the terrible twos <laughs> were supposed to hit. The new one I've heard is three-nager. Have you heard that one? Mm-mm. It's apparently like... It's a thing? Yeah. Okay. I don't know how that's no. different than terrible twos or if it's just longer. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's the same it thing but longer. keeps going on. Yeah. Terrible threes didn't have a good ring to it. So kind of some of the physical stuff that toddlers are doing, like I said, they do toddle for about a year during this stage. Like mom said last time, kids are kind of walking by around year one or two. Mm -hmm. And then by three, they're not walking as badly. (laughs) (laughs) They're just refining that skill. So Mm -hmm. they're kind of learning to walk better instead of doing the drunk toddler fall down thing that they do. And Mm -hmm. and instead of leaning on things as much, they're walking on their own a little better. Mm -hmm. Um, By two, they do have pretty good gross motor skills. So they can wash their hands. They can jump in place. They can throw a ball over their head. They can brush their teeth with a little bit of help. So they have pretty good control of their arms areas. (laughs) (laughs) And their legs, just sort of in the wide general motions. They can't, like, make glass figurines yet, but they can do the big stuff (laughs) pretty well. And experts say that motor activity in this stage is the most important. So... Other than safety restrictions, one of the important things is that caregivers need to allow their toddlers to do stuff. Mm -hmm. They need to allow their toddlers to have some freedom to explore this new movement that they have, this new, you know, the ways that they're expressing themselves with their motion. They need to be allowed to do that and explore the limits of what they can and can't do because that's how we learn. How we learn is we we practice and we, we do things and we have the opportunity to do things. So I know caregivers can get really paranoid. Right. Like, oh my gosh, don't do that, don't do that. But can I do a flashback for a minute to infancy? Because yes. I didn't say this during infancy, but I think it's significant and ties in with what you're just saying right mm-hmm. now. One of the things that we've kind of evolved in our society is that we always put our babies now on their backs when they sleep because mm-hmm. of SIDS. And, yeah. and I understand all that. When years ago, we would always put our babies on their bellies. Mm-hmm. And because we're putting our babies on their backs all the time now there's less uh, tummy time we call it yeah and so that's one of the re- that was a good sound <laughs> <laughs> could you tell the panic look i threw up the waveform <laughs> you you looked at the, the computer like oh my Shit. goodness that, <laughs> that was an explosion in my mouth okay <laughs> 
But in this effort to be safe, which of course we want to be safe when we want our babies safe, but we need to give them tummy time because that's one of the reasons they learn to crawl because mm-hmm. they're on their bellies yeah. and they push up with their little arms. Right. Like and you so, said, I was really surprised mm-hmm. last time when you said they can lift their heads and shoulders by like mm-hmm. three or four months. I can't yeah, remember when they're what real little. Oh, that's little. Yeah. But they got to be on their tummy to right. figure that out. Right. Otherwise, they don't strengthen those muscles. So this is just like what you're saying. We want to be careful and be good caregivers, but we also need to give them the time. to when they're infants to have tummy time and to learn to crawl and to let them crawl let them be on the floor and when they're toddlers let them play let them like obviously still cover the electrical sockets and stuff (laughs) don't give them a fork and and (laughs) say go for it yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) don't yeah don't give them a pocket uh, pocket knife and just be like go crazy kid Happy no. birthday. Here's your first Swiss <laughs> Happy birthday. knife. Here's the Swiss Army knife. Yeah, don't, don't do whittle that. something. Just, again, like almost everything else in life, it's about finding a balance. Mm-hmm. It's about finding a balance between keeping them safe and protected, but right. not hovering over them too much and yeah. allowing them to have those experiences. Mm-hmm. So by three, they can walk upstairs. And I read kind of differing stuff, but most of what I read was by three, they can walk upstairs. Like, you know how kids do that cute thing where they like put one foot up on the stair and they put the other foot up on the same stair and then they go I do the same still. thing. <laughs> I have short legs. <laughs> I have to. Especially when I have heels on. <laughs> It takes a little yeah, bit just... of time. But I, I read that by three, they can usually walk upstairs alternating feet. And they can balance on one foot and they can dress themselves with some help, which again comes into expressing themselves and making their own choices and mm-hmm. and how that can be an opportunity to exert their own will in a really simple way. They have better coordination in general. Um, they can balance better. Like I said, they don't really lean on things when they walk. <laughs> like they don't, they don't need a walking stick like a little old man. Uh, they don't lean on things unless they're tired, in which point they uh. still will. And they're starting to develop their fine motor skills. Like I said, they can't do much. One thing I read said they could copy a circle. I I don't know if that meant like with a crayon or like in the air with their arms. It didn't really specify, maybe. But I know that by that age, they can draw a circle. I mean, by three or four. Yeah. Preschool age. And they can like hold a crayon and Mm -hmm. do the thing. Sure. So, yeah. These days, by preschool, a lot of kids can print their name. I mean, it's... They're signing it's legal documents and yeah. stuff. <laughs> yes. That's exactly right. And in toddlerhood, kiddos are just like running for the sake of running. Like they're doing it because they can. And eventually it kind of develops like toward the end of the stage, toward four-ish. It starts to become less of just like, hey, look what I can do. And more of a tool and a component of other games and other activities that they're doing. Like it's just... A way to get from one place to another instead of just, I can do this new motion, so I'm going mm-hmm. to practice it a mm-hmm. lot. But at the beginning, yeah, that is what they're doing. Like, they're realizing that they can do this with their body, so they're going to practice it a lot. It just feels good. Yeah. Just like, wow, yeah. wow, Ooh. a whole new world is open to me. <laughs> and toddlers learn quick, especially as they learn more forms of locomotion besides running. I mean, this is the time when they're first exposed to things like swimming. I know it's really popular to start kids in swimming lessons when they're about this age, like two and three, because then it's easier for them to learn it. It goes back to that neuroplasticity thing that we talked about mm-hmm. last episode, where brains during this time are just more able to learn things. Absolutely. So swimming, um, skating, sledding, dancing, just different ways to move their body. And they want to take advantage of all that. And locomotion links a lot to cognitive development too. Because as kids start to be able to move through their environments more, they start to understand space better. They start to understand distance better. Like earlier when I punched my microphone, like clearly I wasn't, (laughs) I didn't have very good spatial. (laughs) Clearly I didn't uh, develop that very well in Tellerhood. So that is locomotion. The next one is just a huge, huge developmental task. It's language and communication. And I'm going to try not to go too far on a lot of this because, again, parting the curtain a little bit, uh, my husband studied linguistics in school. And so I I asked him if he would like to come on at some point and do an episode about language. I just think that would be really cool. But that being said, there's a lot of really cool ideas in this. And toddlerhood is when we start to really see kids involving themselves in language. I mean, that's when their language kind of explodes. So there's a lot to talk about in this. Mm -hmm. 
Kids are learning to use and understand their language as a way to participate in society around them. It's called the language environment. Obviously, this is the main way we communicate with others. So they're moving from infancy, like mom was mentioning, when they gesture to things to, you know, when they want their bottle and they start gesturing to their bottle. Mm -hmm. They they stop doing that and they're able to communicate with those really simple phrases and then kind of upping their vocabulary as they get older. They're also engaging in semiotic thinking, and that's representational thought. And that's when they start to understand that symbols and speech is a way to represent other things. And this relates a lot to fantasy play that I will talk about in a second. But they're understanding that there's not just a one-to-one correlation, that there's other things that words can mean, basically. Mm -hmm. The best way to foster this developmental area in kids is to give them opportunities for interaction. And especially exposure to adult conversation. The baby talk thing is very important developmentally as well, but also just giving kids an opportunity to listen to adults talk. That's Mm -hmm. how they develop their adult vocabulary. And things like reading aloud are really important to... Reading, 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 reading. Reading, 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 really important important. to language development in kids, Mm -hmm. especially important. So there is a link between the frequency of parent-child interaction and verbal competence. I mean, obviously, the more that parents are able to interact with their kids, the more that kids are able to to get that interaction, the higher the vocabulary is going to be and the higher mm-hmm. their understanding of the language is going to be. Exactly. And it also helps to prompt them. Mom, can you remind us what hollow phrases are? You said that in the last mm-hmm. episode. That's like when a baby just uses some syllables like baba mm-hmm. and maybe some gestures like pointing to it or doing something with their hand that in that simple syllables, it's like a whole sentence for them. Right. So like saying baba means, can I please have my bottle? Right. So an important part of this stage, of toddler stage, is prompting them if they're still engaging in that. Mm -hmm. So if they're pointing at their sippy cup and saying, Baba, Baba. you can say like, wait, what do you you need? What do you need? Use your words. Yeah, use your words. (laughs) Use your words. And they'll eventually... People actually do say that to their babies. (laughs) No, yeah, it's real. It's real. Use your words. I say that to adults sometimes. (laughs) I do too. Use your words. In counseling. That sometimes is important. Yes, especially... (laughs) So, so yeah, and they eventually, they will, if they're prompted to do so. If you're mm-hmm. like, what do, you, what do you need? What do you need? They'll be like, cup, cup. Mm-hmm. So they'll say it. Yeah, because it is important that we don't let them, it's kind of like, I hate to use the word lazy, but if we let them be lazy, so to speak, yeah. we don't try to foster more words. Right. They'll get away with less words if they can. Yeah, you know? and then that'll hurt them eventually developing. Their vocabulary, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. So by age three, actually their vocabularies consist of, again, differing information, About 550 to 900 words. Wow. That's a lot. That's a huge jump from infancy where... How many did you say they could understand like 90? Three, 300 was the top, top yeah. that they could understand but right. not speak. Not even speak it. Yeah. So yeah, by age three, the vocabularies consist of, a. am going to say 900. I'm going to yeah. say the upper limit. So yeah, that's just a huge jump. And this is achieved by something called a fast map, which is really fun. That's basically what it sounds like. It's where they quickly form a partial understanding of a word by linking it or contrasting it. That's especially useful to Mm -hmm. a thing that they already know. And I read about a study where, instead of preschool teacher, so yeah, three, four, where she pointed to two trays and one was a blue tray and one was like an olive green. And she said, can you give me the chromium tray? And the kid was like, well, that's not blue, so I'm going mm-hmm. to get the other one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not blue. I don't know that I would have known which one. I would have done well, the same thing. And a lot of the studies that I read that talked about the fast mapping thing used words that are not actually words. Like, they made up words. Oh. So okay. it was obvious that the kid would not know that. So uh-huh. they gave them, like, like I think one was, like, a piece of paper and a ruler and, a, like, a piece of tape or something, and then things that were not real and had unreal names. So the kids were able to say, well, like, well, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that. So it's, it's the contrast thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they're using a fast map too. And it's not like they know what that means. It's just that they know it's not the other thing. So I'm going to be able to connect this thing with the, what the word is. Right. And they usually use broad categories for things. So like if they learn the word cup, they're going to use that to refer to anything with the same general shape and function of a cup. So they're mm-hmm. probably going to call a bucket a cup. Mm-hmm. And they're going to call a bowl a cup. It doesn't mean they think that's what it is. It just means like they're overgeneralizing right, right. and using it as a category type of thing. And they start stringing phrases together and they're understood a little more easily. They use something called telegraphic speech, which is only communicating short things to convey ideas. So why use many words when few words do trick? <laughs> 
They leave out things like pronouns, conjunctions, articles. So they say things like more juice or daddy go. And the interesting thing is that they use these to mean more than one thing. So when they say daddy go, it could mean daddy has left the building. Uh Or it could mean, okay, daddy, it's time for you to leave my room now. (laughs) (laughs) Or daddy's in the bathroom. But they understand, (laughs) exactly, daddy go, daddy go. But they understand the general structure of things but they'll use that for different things and that has a lot to do with like inflection and the gestures they're using too so they're understanding the broader concepts of language and not only vocabulary so like i said by age four kids are starting to understand grammar rules they're not Mm. understanding it super well but (laughs) it's there they cannot diagram sentences no neither can i i can't either (laughs) i actually really like diagram sentences (laughs) i was gonna say you're lying because you like like it it's like a little word puzzle it's fun But they understand, like, noun, then verb. So, like, daddy, go. Like, that's, I mean, it's obviously missing a few things in between. (laughs) But it's got the kind of basic structure down. Yeah, I get it. Daddy, go. Yeah. One really cute thing I need to talk about is over-regularizing. This is especially for, like, irregular verbs. This is, like, when they learn that if you like add... Like, run and... Yeah. Okay, If yeah. you learn that you can add ED to the end of a word and it makes it past tense, mm-hmm. kids are more likely to say, like, he runned away mm-hmm. instead of saying he ran away. But that's good. I mean, I, I know it's easy to look at that and be like, oh, no, he's going to learn it wrong. No, he's just figuring it out on his own and he'll get there eventually like it's not their fault that english is dumb (laughs) english has so many weird rules no we can't help that so yeah and also by this stage they start to ask questions so they start to ask what and how and why Mm, questions oh those why questions why 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 it's like that's just how it is buddy (laughs) because god made it that way god made it i got that answer a lot when i asked why yeah, that was a standard answer. It was a standard answer, yeah. Uh-huh, Because uh-huh. I still believe that, Anna. <laughs> I know. It's just the I way know. God made it. It's not what I want to know right now, though, Mom. <laughs> and this is kind of a side note. In regards to language and bilingualism, this is the time that brains are best suited for learning other languages. Like I said, that neuroplasticity thing. Mm-hmm. I think there's this conception that, like, well, if I start to teach my kid more than one language, it'll confuse them. But there's been studies where they do, like, they look at how the brain lights up, and when kids are shown a word that's in a different language than the language that is being spoken in the rest of the context, their language area doesn't even light up for it. It doesn't even light. Yeah, so so they are able to do more than one language and compartmentalize them. And because we're already learning language when we're this age, our brains are just primed for that. It won't confuse them to learn more than one. Actually, it kind of helps... I'm going to use the word scaffold, and that's an actual learning concept that we'll talk about some other time. But it actually helps them to learn one language by learning more than one language. And toddlers and multilingual families code switch really well. They can switch between those really well. That's why things like Dora the Explorer have become yeah. more... Yeah, it's just because kids at that age can pick those things up really mm-hmm. well. Okay, 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 okay. Oh, there's so much. <laughs> Number two. Number three is fantasy play. So fantasy play is the opposite of language, really. Language is for representing something with commonly shared ideas and words. Fantasy play is for creating things with a really private meaning. Toddlers are starting to create an inner world, and they're going to express that with their fantasy play. So during toddlerhood, kids shift their fantasies to things that involve others or things that have multiple roles. And there's, you know, there's a difference between solitary fantasy play and social pretend play. But they're going to engage in both at this time. There's something called the theory of the mind, where toddlers are starting to conceptualize what's going on in another person's brain. By age four, this is really interesting, they are able to demonstrate a really accurate prediction of how others are going to think or act in a situation. By four. That's amazing. By four. Like, I know some adults who can't do that very well. Do we back? Do we go backsliding on that one? What's what's Maybe up with that? Maybe it's just that they weren't. We get caught up in ourselves and we forget to. Could be. I, I think. This goes back to giving opportunities to do that. Like maybe mm. kids who aren't socialized as much when they are this age don't develop it as ah, well. That's a good point. But again, it goes back to 
giving them opportunities to practice basically mm-hmm. i mean practice makes perfect and like fantasy play does that include like like make-believe mm-hmm. fr- um characters friends yeah uh, that's, that's basically friends. exactly what it is yeah and so they start to engage in this pretend play they start to play with others uh usually by this time they can name a friend that they have so mm-hmm. they can say that they play with this person they can name them and they start exploring they start playing with different types of toys and toys with different textures and and they start playing with toys in new ways like i said they're just exploring the limits of what they can do mm-hmm. and they usually don't put toys in their mouths anymore <laughs> <laughs> they they are past the point of using their mouths to gather information. Hmm. Yes. And they can usually transition to new activities a little better than they, they did before. But yeah, I mean, pretend play and fantasy play is, like you said, they are making up, I would say they're using imaginary friends as social right. exploration. Right. And as the theory of the mind thing. I mean, they're using, they, they wouldn't be able to make up an imaginary friend if they didn't have some concept of how someone else besides them would act in a situation. Mm-hmm. So they're using that to practice it and also to demonstrate it. I think that's really cool. It's really cool that kids that young can do I that. I still remember my imaginary friend. Who was your imaginary His name was Bobby. Bobby. He was a boy. He was a little boy. He's probably a ghost or something. I was just going to say, I think some imaginary (laughs) friends are ghosts. He wasn't scary, I don't remember. But he used to, like, do everything that was wrong. Like, when somebody did something bad. It was Bobby. It was Bobby's fault. Yeah. I don't know. I I honestly can't remember having imaginary friends I don't think you have. But but Beauty and the Beast were your friends. Right. Even though they were like little puppets. Yeah, I was going to say I used toys as representational friends. You you were very interactive with your little guys, you call them. Mm -hmm. My guys. Mm -hmm. My guys. Yeah. (laughs) My guys. My guys were all the Disney people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Especially Beauty and the Beast, that was my yeah, was my time. But you you had a fine line between because a lot of times with fantasy play, it's all make believe and it's all free play kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But when you were very young, and I would say maybe probably four, maybe three, three or four, that was when you would you would be doing something with Beauty and the Beast, the little puppet guys, and you would I would play with you, and you would be like, "Mom, that is not your line. <laughs> it's not the line." <laughs> <laughs> I was like. We got to start the scene over. <laughs> Take 22. Take it from the top. Mother didn't get her lines right Reset. again. <laughs> so, yeah, very strict. so wait, I think you were trying to connect that with fantasy play. Because that's not fantasy. I was taking the lines from the movie. Well, not always. No? No. Sometimes there was a whole other scenario that wasn't. <gasps> oh, I was. That's why I didn't oh, know I my was lines. making expanded universe. Yeah. <laughs> you I were. was doing Beauty and the Beast fanfic. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's why I didn't know the lines. They were changing every day. (laughs) How is one supposed to know that? Expanded universe like Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay, okay, that makes you more sense. very fertile, fertile that's, brain. That's a very charitable way to look at why you weren't remembering your lines. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you didn't study, I know. <laughs> because you didn't watch the movie as many times as I did. That's kind of true. <laughs> it's, it's a high bar to clear. <laughs> so the next one is self-control. I just spit all over. Speaking of self-control. <laughs> control over your salivary <laughs> I don't have that. But basically, kids are learning how to do all these new things, and they're trying to integrate themselves into the world around them. So it's called self-control, but I would call this self-expression as well. I mean, they're learning how to find the limits of what they can do and when they can do them. I mean, they're Mm kind of learning when they can talk and when they shouldn't and all that. So, I mean, think about being, I know it's so hard to think about being a toddler when we're not. But you're learning how to do all this new stuff and you're learning, you know, how to communicate in all these new ways and how to move in all these new ways. But then you've also got to learn that there's a time and place for all these Mm, things. Exactly. So you've got to learn the balance between what you can do and when you should do it. And that's really Mm -hmm. hard for someone who's just learning that all these things are possible. I mean, that's, that's really hard. And it's kind of amazing that kids can conceptualize it like they can. They're also learning to control and modify their impulses. Like I said, they're learning when they should do things and when they shouldn't. Potty training is a really big thing. Yes. <sighs> and that's really important for the crisis that I'm going to talk about in a second. Okay. So in kind of the cognitive area, by two, kids can follow a two-step command. So pick up the toy and put it on the shelf. But that's about all. <laughs> like, Yeah. Don't go further than that. Yeah. I know especially by the upper levels of this by four and stuff like parents can get a little frustrated when they're telling their kids to pick up the room and do this and do that and do that and then they get really frustrated when the kid doesn't 
But it's not doesn't, it's can't. Right. They really cannot follow steps that are above that mm-hmm. until a little bit later than this. They can name their body parts, they can pick out pictures from a book, and again, with the kind of self-expression thing, they start to develop their own sense of humor. They start to think things are funny, especially like silly things like the concept of a cat barking. They'll think is really funny. <laughs> Which is understandable. That's prime humor. (laughs) The absurdist stuff. Yeah, that's it. That's Uh, so they can count from one to three. They can do simple, simple puzzles. Like I kind of think about the when you have that. I don't know how to describe it. The block with the shapes cut out and then you have the shapes. Oh, yeah. You have to fit the circle and the circle and the square and the square. That's prime toddler toy and that's going along with putting things in categories and figuring out what things are Mm -hmm. and also doing the gross motor skills i mean that's a really good toy to develop kind of all the areas that toddlers are working in Mm -hmm. and that's that's one of those things that i think people around that and caregivers around that can be tempted to be like oh that's not where that goes stop it just let them they'll figure it out like they Mm -hmm. will but then just let them figure it on their own (laughs) So they can do simple puzzles. They can retell a story from a book or from a movie. So like this is, again, where that reading out loud comes into play and how that's really getting into their brains and how eventually like I remember when Robbie, my nephew, was really, really little around this time. And you would especially you would read. He, what was the book? He, I think it was a Goldilocks book. It was Three a Three Bears, Bears book, mm-hmm. right? Three Bears. And he would he ask to read it. Book. And when we got it out, he would be able to tell it. Mm-hmm. He wasn't reading it, obviously, but we had read it so many times and with the same inflection and everything that he was able to tell it in the same way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they can, I mean, they have a lot of brain power. They're like, we need to give them more credit on that. And like I said, they can do the pretend play. And specifically with the self-expression, like I said, just like sense of humor, they kind of start to develop a preference for different toys and activities and foods. And that's another area where they're going to start to exert some of that control. Right. Like, okay, well, I can't control what I'm going to play, but I control which toy I'm going to play with. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to choose to do this one because I like this one the most. We had to do that with a little, I have a little four-year-old who really struggles with the control thing. So we made a circle of control. So I made a big circle and then I made a little circle in the middle of it. And I said, these are things that you can control. And then I had him and his dad help me kind of make a list of things. So one of the things outside of his control was when playtime is. Mm -hmm. He can't control when he gets to do playtime. But then on the inside circle, we put what I play with. So you can control what you play with. This is a Mm four-year-old? Wow. That's hard to do counseling with a four-year-old. He's pretty advanced. He's a smart little guy. But yeah, he was able to understand. That's a that. great exercise. Yeah, I, that would be a good exercise for early early school age kids too, which we're going to yeah. talk about later. Yeah, it's. I think it's generalizable. I mean, maybe uh-huh. in a little bit of a different form, but yeah, kind of all really counseling good. is <laughs> taking a, the same four activities <laughs> and like adapting them to different things. <laughs> By this time, they can also usually self-soothe. And they're soothed with, like, rocking and touch. Like, you touch their back and stuff mm-hmm. um, instead of an extensive routine. Like, you know, how when a baby starts crying, you got to pace them around for 20 minutes. <laughs> and then you got to do this. And you got to do this. <laughs> usually by this age, they're able to do it, first of all, on their own. Like I said, they're able to pick out things and textures that they like more. And some of those things are soothing. And they know that when I hold my fuzzy bunny... I feel better. Mm-hmm. So they're able to do that a little better. I know when I hold my fuzzy bunny, I feel much better. <laughs> That's what she calls me. I'm her fuzzy bunny. <laughs> You're my fuzzy Anna. <laughs> my fuzzy banana. And by this time, they can refer to themselves by name and they can start to conceptualize things about themselves like gender is kind of when this is when gender starts being a thing. And I'm not going to go too much into that because there's a lot to talk about with gender and we have actually gotten a request to talk about gender in an episode sorry bruce i promise we're getting to it we're getting there (laughs) we're getting there but it's a big topic (laughs) so yes this is when that all starts when they start to like i said develop senses of themselves and their identity and that's kind of what we talk about throughout the psychosocial stages is how our identity develops exactly all right i've been talking for so long i'm so sorry I'm so hot. Those so tasks sweaty. are really, there's I so know. many. There's, there's a lot. just so much going on when they're tired. Okay, so 
The crisis in this stage is autonomy versus shame and doubt. And this is, like I said, they start to be able to do things on their own. Their developing motor skills allow them to really examine their environment and exert kind of what they're learning about themselves into what's around them. So they're able to stay close to their parents, but they're also able to go and explore their environment. Mm -hmm. And their interests start to develop. But if there's too much restriction, they don't get to learn that. They don't get to learn what they like. They don't get to learn that they can do things by themselves. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, that they're encouraged to explore and solve problems on their own, they develop a sense of being able to do that, being able to handle things that come to them. So that's autonomy. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, if caregivers either demand too much or they never let the kid kind of solve their own problems, then they develop shame or doubt about not being able to handle things. Mm -hmm. So it all comes back to being able to do things on their own. That kind of goes back to the thing that you said about that little box with putting the little figures yeah, in. Yeah. And if the kid is trying to get the star in and they're sticking it in every other hole. And <laughs> you're the, standing there and like, you, I'm going to claw my own eyes right. out. Oh my and God. And you just have to, you just have to take a breath and let them stick it in every single freaking hole <laughs> until they get it to the star. Yes. Instead and eventually of, they do. And then they're like, yes. Right. Because <laughs> then it's a huge victory. Yeah. But if we constantly say, oh no, it goes here. Right. Oh no, it goes here. Then we don't let them develop that autonomy. Right. That's really significant right so when they do develop that autonomy they take forward the ego quality or the virtue of will so they are able to be self-sufficient and solve their own stuff and go forward knowing that they have the ability to do that exactly i am super toddler (laughs) exactly (laughs) so one example of this is like choosing their own clothes and food like for a Mm. caregiver i know this can be really frustrating like when you have to take a toddler out and they look like they just came out of the dryer (laughs) and Like, I I promise I didn't choose this outfit for them. But they're expressing themselves and they're expressing their understanding that they can exert this control over this tiny part of their world. And I'm sorry, if there are any people in the world who judge a three or four year old because they're dressed weird, well, shame on you. Exactly. Like, leave them alone. They're three and four and they want to look like that and that's cool. And God bless those parents for having the courage to letting that kid look like that. Yeah, exactly. Because it, what does it matter? It, exactly. What does it matter? Good grief. Yes. Get and if, over it, If people. they don't. <laughs> Sorry, but that really, really, that really gets feisty. me upset. <laughs> Stop judging that toddler. Stop it. Don't judge toddlers. <laughs> so if they don't develop that autonomy, then they develop the pathology of compulsion which mm. relates back to feeling like you can't do things and feeling like you have to do things a certain way and, and shame if you don't do things properly and all that stuff. All that fun stuff. Mm. So to foster success in this, like I said, just provide opportunities for kids to be independent. Give them choices. Let them pick out, you know, their own healthy snack or their own what they're going to wear. Like, allow them to do that. Because really, again, what's the harm in if they're going to wear a tutu over over their jeans? It's <laughs> fine. It, that's a good look. Might start a new fashion yeah. thing. It looks good. Mm-hmm. So being supportive rather than punitive, especially during potty training, like I said, that's a huge area that kids can feel mastery over something. So let them do that and be supportive of them during that and offer safe opportunities to play both independently with the support of your caregiver and with others to let them foster that fantasy play and everything. So basically the opportunity to explore while also being able to come back to safety to their caregiver, which goes back to fostering attachment like they did in infancy. And the way they do this, the central process of this is imitation. Again, interactions with the caregiver um, for developing that language, for watching how others, how... I learned it from you. Exactly. <laughs> how I always throw that in mom's face. That's I learned because it from you. We, we learn how to be adults by imitating adults. Mm-hmm. Not just in language, but with everything. All right. I'm done talking. <laughs> That's a lot of responsibility. It is. For the adults. Yeah. And I know it's a lot of responsibility. And especially if you're listening and you have little little children, it's it's can seem really overwhelming because you yeah. feel like, oh my gosh, everything is on me that for them to turn out okay. It is overwhelming. But it'll turn out okay. But it'll be okay. As long as you take, love them. Take a deep breath. Them. Love them. Be consistent. Yep. I don't know how many times we have to say, be consistent. Routine's very important for right. little ones. Right. Exactly. Whew, that was a lot, Anna. I know. I'm so sweaty. Whew. Whew. If I had a fan, I would blow it on you. Thank you. We have a fan. We just can't turn it on. It's too loud. <laughs> it takes too much noise. Yeah. So we are suffering for our listeners. Yes. Y'all, we are Y'all. sweating for we you. Are. We are. Our blood, sweat, and tears are going into this <laughs> podcast for you. Uh. 
So, Mom, tell us about stage three. Early school age or early childhood, which is for our explanation today, is going to be four to six-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And so that's like prime time for kindergarten, basically. And these days, you know, a lot of children go to preschool for even two years or early childhood kind of training, something like that. So a lot of little ones go to some school situation as a three-year-old and a four-year-old. So that's pretty significant change. Yeah, that's becoming more and more common. More and more. And so while years ago, especially when Erickson would have set up his timeline, That probably wasn't really the case. When Erickson uh, was setting up his timeline, he would have been thinking about kindergarten for a five-year-old. So things have kind of changed a little bit. But moving into that early school age, four to six, uh, very briefly, the tasks that come up during that time include gender identification again, and that's mm-hmm. kind of solidifying it even more, which, as Anna said, we're going to have to do, and we probably will end up doing more than one episode about that because <laughs> there's, there's so there's much. There's a lot. And this is one of the things that's evolving literally every day, gender identification. But traditionally, in Erickson's view, um, four to six years old was when the children started to realize uh, things about what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a girl. What does that mean? That stuff hasn't changed. Right. I mean, by this age, kids do start to recognize that there are differences between genders and they start to conceptualize how that means for them it's just more of a spectrum than Erickson and his compatriots would have exactly so we will talk about that more in an upcoming episode but just to know that that is a very important part of early school age even like on a really weird scale the idea that like kindergarten teachers say boys line up yeah girls line up yeah you know Early moral development is part of their development, and that is kind of, you know, exactly what it sounds like, learning right from wrong, learning to develop their own conscience Mm -hmm. so that they have empathy for others, first of all. They're starting to grow their empathy. They're starting to grow a principle of care, which means that they want to help take care of other people, and also perspective taking, which means that they start to kind of realize that the way they see something is not necessarily the way that other people see that. Right. Which goes back to the toddler thing. Exactly. Where they start to then. develop then. Yeah. Right. So it's starting to solidify more now with their moral development. Um, <laughs> Again, I'm just... Some some adults don't clearly did not develop this <laughs> during this prime but time. I, I think it's important that we say and, and remind ourselves that like Anna just said, a lot of the things they were doing as toddlers, they're still doing yeah. as early childhood. And actually, they'll still be doing in middle school. Oh, yeah. Because we're developing continually. Right. Continually. And also, this is a good time to mention that part of these psychosocial stages is that they can be worked on later. Exactly. That if we get through one of these stages and we don't master one of these things, even as adults, we can come back and work on these. Right. So, And that's often what has to happen because some of us yeah. are stuck with missing a Piece. Yeah, like I think a lot of people have this conception that empathy, especially, is just inborn. And if you're a more empathetic person, then that's just how you are. But there's a lot of studies that are coming out that say that empathy can get better with practice. Right. So right. Th- there's never if you're if you're like listening to this and like I like I'm making these snarky comments about it, and you're thinking like, <laughs> oh yeah, there's some people who don't do that. Like maybe help them. Maybe offer, like I said, offer an opportunity mm-hmm. because the more they get to practice that, the better it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Another one of the developmental tasks of this early childhood is self-theory. And that's basically building your self-esteem, building the knowledge of who you are, which, duh, obviously carries on (laughs) through every stage. I mean, I'm quite old and I'm still doing this. So, um, Yeah, we never just like stop. No. Learning who we are. Well, gosh, I hope we don't. I know. That'd be boring. That would be boring. Boring. Yeah, we never want to stop learning. Our self-esteem at this point, as in all ages, are based on messages of love and support from the other people around us, but also our own realization that we have certain talents and attributes. Even from four to six, we start to realize, oh, you know, I am pretty good at drawing. (laughs) Now, sometimes that view is kind of skewed because our caregivers are like, oh, you're an artist. You're the best. You know, maybe. Uh, Yes, I am the best. I can draw this little stick person. Uh Um, but that's all good. That's that's good, positive yeah. self-esteem building. It's better to have, I mean, like, obviously that can go too far if you're like a narcissist. Right. But it's better to have <laughs> higher self-esteem than lower. Right. But as a four to six-year-old, we are starting to really compare ourselves to other people. 
We're starting to look at my drawing and look at that little girl across the way and think, oh, damn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she draws way better with her crayons than Man, I do. Man, she is so much yeah. better at staying in the lines. <laughs> exactly. Man. <laughs> we start to compare ourselves and that does affect our, our self-theory, our self-esteem a little bit. There's a, kind of a cool thing in this that at this age – I mean, it starts even younger, but this it's really solidifying. We talked about the parts of our brain that are solidifying in different ways, you know, that they're so plastic at different points. Right. There's a part of our brain that actually recognizes ourselves when we look in a mirror. Oh, cool. And yeah. this is kind of the age when that really solidifies between four and six. Huh. And we see ourselves, you know, walking by a window and we go, oh, that's me. This puts me. I look fabulous today. <laughs> uh-huh, yes. <laughs> I knew this tutu over jeans looked good, Mom. <laughs> Why did my mother not like this, this outfit? This puts I look new, fabulous. <laughs> when uh, the last time, like I, th- I mentioned in the last episode, my nephew Aiden, who lives with his parents in Canada, mm-hmm. he moved to there to, to Canada. No, he was born there. <laughs> but they, the last time they were visiting, uh, I was holding him, and there was a mirror, and I like held him in front of the mirror, and he was very confused. So this puts <laughs> this, this puts yes. new context yes, on he's that. Like, Who's that good looking man? I was just man. confusing that boy. <laughs> Yeah, when they're infants, they're still thinking, oh, look at that baby. Yeah. There's another thing, baby you know? here. Oh, there's Why didn't you tell me there's another baby here? <laughs> I could hang out with that baby. <laughs> I could have been hanging out with him. <laughs> and the last developmental task of this early childhood is peer play, which Anna kind of started to talk about even as toddlers. They start to right. share that fantasy play. But when they get to be four to six, this is when we start to play shoots and ladders oh. and candy land. So like games and, with rules yeah, and structure. like group games. Gotcha. Uh, Duck, duck, goose is a big <laughs> one yeah <laughs> i really i love this age i mean i love all little little children but <laughs> only this age <laughs> I, I think i think this is one of my favorites because i taught kindergarten yeah and we were talking about this before that that felt very much like who i was called to be yeah a kindergarten teacher they are so amazing those little five and six year old people so uh, duck duck goose is a biggie um little girls tend to prefer dyads they tend to prefer just having one little friend with them yeah, yes little boys tend to prefer groups they would rather play in a group of boys hmm. but again this whole different yeah. personalities there are little girls who prefer to play with a big group of boys sure. or a little boy who prefers to play with one little girl right. and we'll touch on how that changes with different gender expressions as well exactly Okay, so those are basically the tasks, kind of a quick over. It's um, really interesting that those tasks are so close to the toddler tasks. Isn't it? I mean, I, basically those are all just, and then they kept refining right, that. Right, Like. You could almost put that all in one. I was going to say, it's strange. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder how he chose to break them up like he did. I think it was specifically school age. Maybe. I think, you know, okay, now they're getting ready for kindergarten. Yeah, and infancy and, and Because that was before preschool, really, the way that we do preschool now. Right. So it's kind of like getting ready for kindergarten and in kindergarten mm-hmm. kind but of But I thing. don't think those have changed. Like in the, like we were talking about how there's different, like, breakups right. of different stages. These I don't are think still so different. Or yeah. These are still broken these up are, the same way. That's yeah. exactly right. The psychosocial crisis for this stage, for early school age or early childhood, is initiative versus guilt. Big word. Initiative. Now I'm making the smack sound. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> At least you do it separate from other words. Like you say a word and then you do it and then there's so I can cut it out easily. Oh, don't cut it out. It was very prominent. Okay. Initiative. One of the quotes from Erickson is, initiative is a manifestation of the I. Doesn't that sound very heady? It sounds like it makes my brain hurt. Hippie. Like Basically, your third I? What does that mean? The oh, like capital the letter, letter I. I. <laughs> Uppercase. I was like, what does it have to do with I. eyeballs? <laughs> so basically now um, we're conceptualizing the world like in toddlerhood we went and we did it physically we mm-hmm. checked out the world physically now we're starting to think about it we're thinking about what that meant so in toddlerhood it was more a, a physical thing and now it's more of a cognitive thing at this age initiative includes testing to see what makes adults angry that's part of the thing we do oh, sure. four to six we start to you know see how far can i go with that this? boundary testing thing exactly yeah. how far am i gonna go also the other thing that little people four to six years old get real into is investigating their body and the bodies of others and so this is when parents should not panic a whole lot when they find their little one playing doctor <laughs> yes and everyone doesn't have pants on i was gonna <laughs> say like thinking back to when you taught preschool i know you had several incidents 
incidents of kids like pleasuring themselves in class mm-hmm. kindergarten yes did i say that did you I said preschool? preschool kindergarten yes but 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 that's i mean this is when yes, that starts happening absolutely and, and so like i think that is something that we have to and i know there have been several times with clients and the parents of the clients that i'm seeing where they're very worried about these things that the kids are doing <laughs> and it's like this is not normal i'm yeah. like actually it is kind of is this yeah. is developmentally very normal but this goes back to kind of what you said in your stage about learning where those lines are and we learn that even more four to six and so th- this is when we start to teach them it's not a bad thing but you need to know when to do it you need to know that it's not okay to do it right at church <laughs> please yes. please don't do it during yeah church. yeah um, <laughs> just because you can doesn't mean you yeah. should exactly you know in our private times we have private parts or private times kind <laughs> yes. of rules like that which is all part of this this whole learning our initiative versus guilt so if we feel free and we feel good about initiative about investigating our world conceptually then we move forward so if we if we get that part of the crisis that we we get the initiative by the way the central process is identification that's that learning who I am. Mm-hmm. When I look in the mirror and I say, hey, that's me. And when I learn, I am good at drawing little people. And I do sing like my mommy or whatever. Um, we start to identify ourselves. That is our central process of initiation versus guilt. Unfortunately, the guilt is usually tied to things that bring about shame and upset. Now, there's 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 a fine line here. That's that weird noise hmm. I make. <laughs> When I'm going, uh, it's like she's revving up. How am I going to explain this? Uh, <laughs> I'm growling um, at my notes. Yes, I am. If a child has has that good feeling of initiative, they're much more likely to do well in in their schooling, in academics. If they're stuck in the guilt part where they feel like they can't take initiative, they're afraid to try. Basically, yeah. so it's not so much they try and they fail; it's that they just don't try. That's they've kind of tried where the and they failed, and right. they've been like, "Well, that was enough, right? <laughs> One and done." And again, as Anna said before, it's all about balance, really, as a parent or as a caregiver. It's about balance because a child learns that even though some areas are off limits, it's okay to want to understand them, mm-hmm. and we give them those times to do that appropriately. Mm-hmm. But it is also important to help them understand what the limits are because we don't want them to be socially unacceptable. Right. So we shouldn't feel guilty about teaching the children what those limits are, but we just have to be careful about the way we teach them. Right, yeah. And that we don't guilt them for doing it. Again, it's all about balance. The word guilt kind of has this heavy connotation. And in therapy, a lot of times we talk about guilt and we talk about why you're feeling this way because you're so feeling so much guilt. But we don't want to completely throw that word out because we actually can use guilt as a positive thing to keep us from doing things that we shouldn't do. (laughs) Yeah, it's a tool if you use it right. right. Exactly. So again, it goes back to balance. Yep. That, That it's good to have a conscience. It's good to have that balance. But that's not the kind of guilt we're talking about here. No. Yeah. In this thing. That, that we're talking about with this psychosocial crisis. This is not just like guilt that makes us do the right thing. It's guilt that weighs on us so heavily that we cannot be who we really are. Right. And we can't have the courage to look at our world around us. So as a four to six-year-old, we feel so guilty about making mistakes that we don't try. Mm-hmm. We shut down. And so unfortunately... Well, on the good side first, if we have that initiative, we come up at our crisis with initiative, using identification, learning who we are, then our ego quality or our virtue is purpose. We go forward like, I can do this. I've got a purpose in life. Unfortunately, the core pathology is inhibition. Which is exactly what you said about like, I'm just not going to try. Exactly. I'm just not going to do it. And so we can really see that. I know that as a past kindergarten teacher, mm-hmm. by the time I would have children in kindergarten, most of them had been through preschool. And so they had some of this already on them. And so right away, you could see the kids who would come in like, I'm, I know my I'm gonna ABCs. Do it. I'm going to, you know, and they would take charge and they would be like, <laughs> this is my year. Exactly. This is my year. Exactly. I am going to shine. <laughs> I'm going to be the shining star. And then there are kids who come in with that feeling of inhibition that they can't do anything right, so they just don't try. Oh. And unfortunately, if they hold on to that through this early childhood, then they go into elementary school, which is like first through fifth grade-ish. Mm-hmm. 
with that same feeling hanging over them like you know what's the point what's the point of trying I'm not going to get good grades or I'm not going to be the best person on the baseball team yeah I mean obviously if this stuff isn't dealt with it's just going to keep going right like they're not going to just oh well I got over that like usually that doesn't happen without some sort of hey I know you're kind of feeling this way let's talk about it so unfortunately, the responsibility again kind of falls back onto parents. Mm-hmm. Sorry, parents, if you're a parent <laughs> listening, that that central process of identification comes from our parents. We identify with our parents. So unfortunately, studies have shown things like children whose especially mother is very depressed and especially like if a mom is dealing with some postpartum stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. that through toddlerhood and early school age if a mother is depressed a lot a child identifies with that and watches mom and sees mom feeling like she can't accomplish anything because that's what depression does to us we feel like we're just not able to do anything they internalize that and that becomes part of their identification so as parents we want to help our children to know go ahead and try it do it and it's not that when they play the shoots and ladders, they always win. Right. Because they got to learn sometimes you don't win. Yeah. I wasn't very good at that. But <laughs> that's not something I internalized for <laughs> I sure. I was going to say. Because I, I always know. let my babies win. Because I couldn't take it if they did. That's why I'm so competitive now. And like I cannot play. I'm sorry. Like I cannot play some games because I know I'll get too <laughs> heated if I don't win. Can't do it. Yeah. So, um, but we do need to help our children to identify the way that we handle situations and the way we use our self-control. The last little note that I would add about this four to six-year-old is the idea of school readiness for parents. You know, traditionally, we kind of hit that point where we're like, well, if you're five years old, you're going to be in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. But it is okay if your child is not, if you're a parent listening to this, and you have a child who's going to be five, you know, in June or whatever, whenever you're listening, uh, and the school year starts, and you think, well, they should be in kindergarten. You know your child really well. You know if your child has hit these milestones where they're ready to accept this. And one of the most important things children learn in kindergarten, if I can speak as a past kindergarten teacher, (laughs) is just learning to live with other boys and girls, which is actually one of the developmental tasks of this. And I mean, it's a developmental task in our lives. Like one of the (laughs) reasons we go to school is is to learn the socialization part. Exactly. I mean, arguably more important than the education part, because a lot of that education they could probably learn on their own. Right. But they're not going to be able to learn how to be with other people unless they're given the how to learn how to put up with difficult people people who are going to maybe not treat them so well how to engage in relationships with other peers with with friends how to know how to choose friends wisely yeah how to follow rules in a group so much of the childhood four to six and beyond Mm -hmm. is all about that so so just that last little footnote about school readiness don't be so caught up in you know i should send my kid to school because they're five or six or whatever it's fake yeah, there's no such thing. There's no shoulds. Know your child. Read to your child constantly, <laughs> you know, and um, interact with your child. Because both Anna's stage that she talked about today with toddlerhood and my stage of early childhood, those little people are looking to the adults around them to yeah. know, who am I? Who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? Right. Is it okay if I'm this as opposed to this? Like, exactly. Like, I know we talk a lot about the responsibilities that caregivers have, mm-hmm. but that's because... Like, you're their world. Exactly. Like, caregivers are the entire world, especially before they go to school, before they have interactions with the rest of the world, Mm -hmm. you're their world. Like, maybe they go to daycare, that's great, that's some socialization, but you're the ones they're looking to for support and for, like, is it okay if I do this and am this person? To be that safe attachment. Right. And so, so real quick, just kind of switching it around for a minute for those of you who are listening to the podcast who really aren't really into the worrying about the kids at their stages, but maybe you're thinking about yourself and you're thinking, holy crap, when I was... This is making a lot more yeah, sense. Yeah, when I was that age, I did this and this, and that's maybe why. That's the kind of thing to talk to your counselor about. Yeah. Um, and that is something we talk about in counseling. When people, we talk about life stages, maybe if we see in a client that they're struggling with a relationship in a certain way, or they're struggling with keeping a job or having the courage to go apply for a job. You know, these are things that might be visited with your counselor. Mm-hmm. And you could do some reading on it yourself if that's something that interests and you. And that circles back to what we talk about a lot in this podcast, that, that self-awareness Self-awareness. Thing, that, you know... Bazinga. <laughs> we can't always do the self-awareness. Gross. 
gross word. <laughs> but yeah, like just looking back at this and being able to connect it with your own life. I mean, there are some episodes of this that you will listen to and be like, this has nothing to do with me. We hope mm-hmm. it's still fun to listen to. We hope we still make <laughs> we you laugh. So. We hope so. But if not, like, well, no, not if not. Please, please laugh at just us. Just keep laughing. It's very good for my self-esteem. Yes, yes. But yeah, there's definitely going to be some of this that's going to connect with you and that you're going to say, oh, well, okay, maybe that is why I do this and maybe right. that's why I don't do this. Great. Because good. we all go through the stages. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I've been through more than you have, Anna. But <laughs> and always will be ahead of you in this race. But I don't, know. don't yeah. be too competitive. There, well, since the stages <laughs> get bigger, maybe at some point we'll be in the same one. In the same category. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, gosh, I hope not. Okay. Okay. Do you want to thank the people for listening? I would love to. Because <laughs> if they weren't listening, we would be really silly sitting here talking <laughs> to tree, If a tree falls in the forest, <laughs> do podcasters still talk? <laughs> I mean, we would probably still <laughs> We'd talk still to be each doing other. This, oh. Long after the podcast is over someday, we'll still like sit with these microphones yeah. because it's cool to hear each other through our headsets <laughs> instead it? of just it's face to face. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you very much for listening. That's yes. the point. Yes. Thank you. I will throw in here another endorsement for PodCoin. Yes. If you're not on PodCoin yet, I believe by the time this episode releases, we will still be a bonus podcast, for, but not for too much longer, maybe a couple of days. But that basically means if you go on PodCoin, it's an app where you get basically paid to listen to podcasts. You get coins and you can spend those coins for gift cards or on charities. And we are a bonus podcast for a little while. So that means you will be able to earn more PodCoin than usual if you are listening to our episodes through the app. And there's lots of other, I mean, I think every other podcast is on there. So go out there, explore, find other things to listen to, all good stuff. But always come back to us. (laughs) Always come back to us. Subscribe to us on PodCoin and wherever else you listen to. They're your great podcasts. Yes. And find us other places as well. Interact with us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. We're all Freudian Sips Pod on all of those. And our site is FreudianSipsPod.com. Our email is FreudianSipsPod at gmail.com. We're, we're just Freudian Sips Pod everywhere. We try to make it very simple. And we are also on Patreon. I think you can guess what our name is on there. It's Freudian <laughs> Sips Pod. And please remember, wherever you're listening, to leave us a nice rating and review, especially on iTunes, even if you're not really an iTunes user. If you want to leave us a nice review on that, we would love it. It really helps our self-esteem. We love to hear from you. We love (laughs) to know we're not alone in the world. Even if it's constructive criticism, that's great. I might cry a little. I, I will too. But it'll we'll be good. Together. It'll be good. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we will increase our competency through that, hopefully, after we cry. Okay. Our theme music <laughs> is Sweeter Vermouth by Kevin McLeod, and it sounds like this. <laughs> <laughs>